0: Acts chapter 2.22, this will be the third part of our series in Acts chapter 2, and the fourth part since we begin in Acts chapter 1, the week before Pentecost. So remember, Acts chapter 1, Jesus is with his disciples, he's not ascended yet to the Father, and he tells his disciples to go and to wait in Jerusalem. And they go and they wait for 10 days. And when the day of Pentecost has fully come, the Spirit of God is poured out and they are filled with the Spirit. They begin to speak in other tongues. They come down from the upper room and there are men gathered from every nation under heaven, the Bible tells us. And these men gathered from every nation under heaven hear these disciples declaring the wonderful works of God in their own language. And they recognize that these disciples are from Galilee and they know they're basically illiterate fishermen. How in the world are they speaking and how are we hearing them declare these things in our own language? And then Peter. Peter who had denied Jesus for three, three times but yet affirmed his love three times before Jesus ascends to the Father. This Peter who was so afraid that he was hiding out for his very life, this Peter comes down, filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he preaches a sermon, a powerful gospel message that cuts the men of Israel to the heart and brings them to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is where we're going to pick up our story this morning. So read with me as I... Read or follow along with me. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Peter is speaking here. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. "'whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, "'because it was not possible that he should be held by it. "'For David says concerning him, "'I foresaw the Lord always before my face, "'for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. "'Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. "'Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, "'for you will not leave my soul in Hades, "'nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption.' For you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he both is dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, Spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens. But he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, that you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation." Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common That is the word of the Lord, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Christ, the good news. And the good news is that you have come and you have poured out your spirit on all flesh. We don't have to be born prophets, priests, or kings. We just have to be born again by the spirit. Children of God, filled with the spirit, empowered and emboldened by that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Father, we ask that you would, by that Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds and reveal your truth to us and change us and transform us, that we would grow up to maturity in all things in Christ, that we would be a people, a bright witness for you in this dark world, that we would be a people of faith, knowing that we are safe and secure, that our victory has already been won, and that your church will triumph and will be built to your glory, Father, we thank you for these promises that we have and made certain for us by your spirit that dwells in us, in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 Should give a hearty amen, because that's good news. So Peter comes down from the upper room. He preaches this sermon. And he tells the men of Israel, he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, this is the same Jesus that God purposed. He says this in verse 23, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands. Jesus was crucified because the Father's will was for the Son to die. Jesus was crucified because the Father's will was for the Son's life to be sacrificed that we could be saved. Jesus was crucified because His Father ordained it to be so. And yet, Peter says, you took Him by lawless hand." Because here's the reality, church. You would say, I would never crucify Jesus. Have you ever wondered if you would have lived in that day and been present in that time and you would have been witness to Jesus and heard him preach the kingdom and saw him do his miracles and even raise the dead? Do you think that you would have been in that crowd proclaiming, crucify him, crucify him? I'm willing to bet that you would say, not me, I would never do that. But here's the reality. It was God's foreordained plan. The moment Jesus broke this earthly plane, When he was conceived in the womb of Mary, it was the purpose, the plan, the will of the Father that he be crucified, died, and buried by the hands of lawless sinners. And we would like to think that we would never be that lawless sinner that would crucify Christ. But here's the reality. But by the grace of God, every one of us would crucify him. And every one of us, in a sense, did crucify him. And the only reason we are here today professing our love and our allegiance to Jesus is not because we're good people, much better than those lawless sinners who carried him off to be crucified. No, the only reason we're here proclaiming our love and allegiance and worshiping Jesus today is because God's grace has been extended to us. And by His grace, we are not like those lawless men any longer. Though we were all born just like them. The only reason we're not just like them now is because by grace, through faith, we have been born again. And because we are new creations with new hearts and minds being renewed to that truth. We love Jesus, and we worship Jesus, and we pledge our allegiance to Jesus. And Peter is reminding you, lawless men of Israel, you rejectors of the Messiah, you crucified him. It was the Father's will. You could not have done it apart from the Father's will, but you did it willingly, lawlessly, and it was your will. It was your will to do it, and you did it. And when they realized what they had done, the question they ask is, what do we do now? So we see in verses 22 through 36 that Peter boldly preaches this gospel message. And the preaching of the gospel broke through the hardness, and it cut to the heart, the Bible says. It cut to the very heart of these men. And this demonstrates for us the power of the gospel delivered by a messenger empowered by the Spirit. This is why the Spirit was poured out. That we would be empowered messengers proclaiming the gospel. It's not our power that makes the difference. It is the power of the gospel. And it is the power of the Spirit emboldening us That makes the difference. You are simply, I am simply a messenger. It is the power of the message that breaks through the hardness and cuts to the heart of men who just previously had rejected Jesus. The world is full of these men and women and humans who live in rejection of Jesus Christ. And it's not our ability to convince them to believe. Don't ever, ever, ever think it's your job to convince someone to believe in Jesus. Because if you believe that, and you endeavor to do that, and you actually are successful, you're really doing someone a great disservice. Because if you have the ability to convince them to believe, then there's someone better than you that has the the ability to convince them not to believe. And if the reason they profess faith in Jesus is because some human has convinced them to do so, then they're not really born again. They've just been convinced by a logical, reasonable argument. If the preaching of the gospel and the power of the gospel is not sufficient to break through the hardness of our hearts and cut us to the very depths of our heart, and save us and transform us, then there is no words a man can speak or from the resources of a human mind or a human heart, no words that we can speak from our own resource that can convince you. Well, it may convince you, but it can't save you. Only the gospel can save you. Only the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And all we are called to be are messengers of the gospel, We are not powerful, the message is powerful. We don't have any power within ourselves, but the same Spirit that raised Christ, that dwells in us, now that, now that is powerful. We're simply vessels that contain and are filled with that power. And just like those lawless men carried away Jesus to be crucified, we are to be surrendered men and women under the law of God, carrying forth this gospel message in the power of the Spirit, trusting that through the simple delivery of the gospel, God will take that powerful message, that powerful word, and He will break through the hardness of men's hearts. We are messengers empowered by the Spirit who are called to go out in the authority of Jesus and proclaim the gospel and make disciples and teach them that they are to obey. This is not a suggestion. We are not commanded to go out And suggest that men believe. We are commanded to go out. And we have been given authority to command men to believe. Men are under the command of God. The command of God is believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus. God commands that. And when we do not obey that command. We are in direct rebellion to God. And that does not end well for anybody which is exactly what Peter is telling these men of Israel. You've rejected the Messiah. You've taken him by your lawless hands, and you crucified him. Yes, it was the will of the Father, and thank God it was, because none of us would be saved today if it was not the Father's will to crucify the Son. And thank God that the Son, in perfect obedience to the Father, walked that path throughout his Life here on this earth and carried that cross and went to that hill and allowed himself to be crucified, allowed his life to be taken. He, in fact, it was not taken. Jesus said, No man takes my life, but I give it. In submission to the Father, he carried that cross and on that cross, he gave his life because it was the will of the Father for his life to be given. And that's why you and I today can have the assurance of salvation because it was the Father's will and Jesus submitted to that will and obeyed that will and those lawless men really as an act of their will killed him with murderous intent and many of them paid the price for it. They died and they did not inherit eternal life. But these men that Peter is preaching to, when they realize what has happened here, they become very distraught. Peter preaches this message, they're cut to the heart. It's the same thing that's supposed to happen when we proclaim the gospel. The gospel we are to preach has the power to cut to the heart. We live in a day where we don't want to cut anybody to the heart. We're afraid to hurt someone's feelings, much less cut them to the heart. But do you know that unless men are cut to the heart, they cannot be saved? We don't save men in preaching a gospel that protects their feelings. Men are saved by preaching a gospel that cuts to their heart. And our culture is completely Opposed to that idea today. And so we see churches who preach a gospel that will not cut to the heart. It, it doesn't even heal lightly. It entertains. It does everything except what it's supposed to do. Which is cut us to the heart. We must be a people that are not afraid of that power. And therefore, we must be a people willing to yield and willing to wield that power. We must yield to that power and we must wield that power. This is why when the Bible writes, uh, and it's talking about the armor of God, The Word of God is the only offensive weapon we have. It's the sword of the Spirit, the the Word of God. Jesus used the Word of God when he opposed the enemy when he was tempted. Peter, as we read his sermon, is using the Word of God, and it is the Word of God that is cutting to the heart. So they hear this, and it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What should we do? In response to the question, what shall we do? Peter commands that they repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent, that word literally means to change your mind. We say it means to turn around, to change direction. But listen, you'll never turn around or change the direction until your mind tells you to do that. Right? To repent is to have a change of mind. It's to change the way you think. To change your mind is to change the way you think, and therefore it changes the way you live. The command to repent is a command for men to change their mind about Jesus. This is, what, this is the point of Peter's sermon. He's saying, you killed him, you crucified him through your lawless rebellion. Now change your mind about him, repent, and be baptized in the name of Jesus The command to repent is a command for men to change their mind about Jesus who is both Lord and Christ. And the initial sign that the minds of these men had actually been changed was their obedience to the command to be baptized. So they they had to repent. They were commanded to repent. Now how did their mind change? If their heart was to crucify the Savior, how was their mind changed? Well, someone gave them a new heart. And from a new heart, they were able to change their mind about Jesus. And this is exactly what the grace of God does. It gives to us a heart to trust Him, a heart to turn to Him, a heart that can love Him. Instead of a heart that is opposed to him, a stone-cold, black, dead heart. This is what Ezekiel writes when he says there's coming a day when God will take your stone-cold heart and give to you a warm heart of flesh. And this is what happens when we're born again. We come alive because God gives us a living heart. And we change our mind, we repent. Then he says, Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Be fully immersed into and therefore fully identified with Christ. We're not commanded to be generally baptized, these men were commanded to be specifically baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, we might not, we might miss this in our Western culture. But understand that when Peter commands them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, he's commanding these men to fully identify with Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ, which is a radical departure of what they did think about him and what they did confess about him. In other words, it's not just enough for us to say we believe. Yes, I'm trusting Jesus. He says, no, 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 no. You need to repent. Yes, change your mind, but you need to be baptized. You need to make a declaration that identifies you now fully with Jesus. And the baptism commanded that day signified that these men now identified with Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ, and their obedience in baptism was a result of their repentance and a professed change of mind and heart. It's not baptism that saves us and washes away our sin. It is Jesus Christ that saves us and washes away our sin. It's important to note that it's not the water in baptism, but the Holy Spirit in baptism that is the catalyst for spiritual transformation. The remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit is promised here. And the promise that is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you receive this gift when you are born again and saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And you're born again because God puts His Spirit in you and He gives you life in place of death. He gives you a new heart. Not just a an improved heart he gives you a brand new heart and you become a brand new creation and when you are born again you are placed or immersed into Christ by the spirit you receive the remission of sins your sins are forgiven and you receive the gift of the holy spirit 1st corinthians chapter 12 verse 13 Paul writes, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. By one spirit, we were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. By one spirit, we are all baptized, we're all immersed, we're all placed into Christ. By the Holy Spirit, we are baptized into Christ and become living members of His body. So the Holy Spirit, not the water, places us into Christ. There's no magic in the water. The magic is in the Spirit. Being placed into the water or having water placed on us does not place us into Christ. It is the Spirit of God that places us into Christ. Therefore, it is the Holy Spirit that transfers us from death to life and from darkness to light in Christ. That baptism is that outward sign of what we are praying and hoping and believing is taking place inwardly. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the promise of God to us, to our children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The water through baptism is the outward symbol of what the Spirit actually does inwardly in baptizing us or placing us into Christ. The natural waters of baptism dry and they depart us. But the living water of the Spirit abides in us forever. Abiding faith and abiding fruit of the Spirit ultimately testifies that we have been baptized into Christ by the Spirit of God. So we can baptize an infant or we can baptize an adult. I was 24 years old when I was baptized. and When Pastor Jimmy Bennett baptized me right back there behind that board and that baptismal that's back there, his faith was, his trust was that I was truly born again and that I would walk out this faith until I die and depart this earthly plane and go to be with Jesus. But do you know that he did not know whether that would happen or not? He didn't know when he baptized me that I'd be still here at Christ Fellowship Church or that I'd still be serving the Lord. But he baptized me in faith that I would be. But it wasn't the water that changed me. It was the spirit on the inside of me that changed me. And what testifies of my faith is not that I was baptized. I don't remember the day I was baptized. I mean, I remember the day I was baptized because it was really cold. But I don't remember the exact date. I can't can't tell you that. But I can testify that the Spirit has placed me into Christ, has immersed me into Christ because of my faith today. When we baptize an infant, we're not saying that infant is saved. We're trusting that the Spirit is going to do a work in that infant and that child is going to be raised up in the covenant, according to the covenant, to trust in the covenant, to trust in the promises of the covenant, to trust in the God of the covenant, And at some point in time, the Spirit will do its work, but that baptism is its initiation into the covenant. It's that outward sign that this is a covenant member. Just like when I was 24 and got baptized, that was the covenant sign that I'm now a member of the body of Christ. And so then I could come to the table and I can do things. And I was treated like a part of the family. And it was assumed that I was a believer Even though I still had lots of faults, and I still do have lots of faults, and I still sin, and I still fall short, but it's not the magic of the water, it's not the magic of my ability to live sin free, it's the magic and the power of the Spirit that's doing and has done and will continue to do a work in us. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 1:22 and Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. The Spirit of God in us is the guarantee of our salvation. And when we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that baptizes us into one body. It is the Holy Spirit that comes to dwell in us and seals us. It is the Holy Spirit that bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8, verses 14 through 16. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to be witnesses. It is the Holy Spirit that manifests the life of Christ through the body. This body and this body. It is... The Holy Spirit that produces the living fruit of the Spirit made manifest personally in our lives and corporately in the church. And if we are abiding in Christ and Christ is abiding in us, it is so by the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Ultimately, it is not our baptism in water that indicates true change, True change inwardly will be made manifest outwardly by the life and the fruit of the Spirit that abides in us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Those men that day, when they were baptized, they weren't saved because they got baptized. They got baptized because they realized that their salvation was in Jesus. And they were willingly, they were willing to identify Jesus fully and completely with that Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was that Holy Spirit that was poured out that day that placed them, immersed them into that one body, under that one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the same today for every child of God that is born again. So ultimately, it's not our baptism in water. It's our baptism by the Spirit. We can repent outwardly and we can be baptized outwardly, but we must be changed inwardly by the Spirit. And the reality of the Spirit in us will ultimately produce the reality of a changed heart, a changed mind, and a changed life. In other words, if we profess faith in Jesus, But there is no change in our life. We should be troubled. And we should examine ourselves. And we should ask ourselves, if I truly am trusting in Jesus, if I truly love Jesus, why is there not a change taking place in my life? Because if Christ is in you, dwelling in you by His Spirit, there will be a change. There must be a change. That life must be manifest. And you're not saved because it manifests. It manifests because you are saved. You say, well, there's not much difference there. Well, in reality, there isn't much difference there. But if we are saved, if we are in Christ and Christ is in us and that same Spirit that dwells in, that raised Christ dwells in us, then there will be a change and a manifestation of that life in us. There has to be. So we come down to verses 42 through 47 to the end of this chapter and we see what true change initiated by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit looks like in the life of the church. The people of God are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be His witnesses and Christ is made manifest in His body of believers as they daily live out their faith. And in these verses, Dr. Luke writes, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. The mark of transformation was seen in the community of believers. Verse 42 begins with, and they. You know, we always talk about they. Who are they? Well, they are not just this unknown, mysterious group of people. The they here in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 they are the community of believers. We are a community of believers this morning. Someone could be driving by and say, there they are in that church worshiping God. Well, who are they? Well, they're you, and they're you, and they're you, and they're you, and they're you. They're each of us individually. That's who they are. That's who the church is. We talk about the church in this in this with this big term from this thousand mile view from way up in the sky, but the reality is we are the church, but we're not the church by ourselves. We're the church together, but there is no together without each of us individually. And what you see marking the transformation that took place in this community of believers is that they live their lives together. They worship together. They did what they did for the glory of God together. Doesn't mean they all lived in one big house on a commune. No, that's not what it means. It means they assembled together as individuals. They came together as a collection of individuals to create a body of people. They, this body of people, this community of believers, they continued steadfastly. They continued. Not just sporadically, not just for a while. They continued steadfastly. This is the mark of transformation. I can can baptize someone today, but the mark of their transformation is not whether they got baptized today. It's whether... 10 years from now, 20 years from now, they are continuing steadfastly in the faith. That is the mark of real transformation that the Spirit really brings to our life. They continued steadfastly in what? In the Apostles' doctrine. Doctrine's a dirty word today, a lot of people don't like to use it. It's simply a word that means teaching. But teaching is a dirty word today too because a lot of people aren't teachable and don't want to be taught and think they don't need to be taught because we have Google and we have the internet now. Why do I need a teacher? I don't need anybody as a matter of fact. I can sit in my home and isolate and get everything delivered to me by Amazon or somebody else and I can get online and I can learn everything I need to learn. I don't need anybody. I don't need people. I don't need a community. I don't need a church. I'll watch that on TV. I'll live stream it on the internet and me and God will have our own little relationship. I got news for you. That's not what Jesus died for. I got news for you. That's not what was created on the day of Pentecost. That's not what was birthed when we talk about the birth of the New Testament church. That's not what we see pictured here in chapters, chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. That's not the community marked by transformation. That is rebellion. That's man doing his own thing being his own free moral agent, thinking he's in control of his destiny, but in reality, he's headed down a path of destruction that is sure as the rising and the setting sun unless he repents and identifies himself totally and completely with Jesus Christ by faith. They continued steadfastly in the teaching of the apostles or in the teaching of the word of God from the law and the prophets to the writings, now to the letters of the apostles and the gospel writers. The word of God. They continued steadfastly in that word in that teaching. And they continued steadfastly in fellowship In fellowship, in fellowship together as a corporate body, in fellowship with one another. It says they went from house to house breaking bread. It says they went to the temple and prayed. We see that they were in fellowship with one another in the assembly of the saints, in large gatherings and in small gatherings in public places and in private places. They continued steadfastly in fellowship, in the breaking of bread. Now this phrase, the breaking of bread, can mean one or two things, both. It no doubt speaks of the table of the Lord that we're getting ready to come to in just a moment. But you understand, back in that day, they didn't just have a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice or wine. It was a real meal. As part of that real meal, there was the table of the Lord where they remembered the body and the blood of Jesus. But breaking bread together as a community was an important exercise. And it was an important mark of the transformation that had taken place. And they did that in public settings, large gatherings, and they did that privately, just like you might do in inviting someone over to your house for dinner, just like we do when we have mission meal and the church comes together and we all eat and break bread together. And they continued steadfastly in prayers. They had appointed times that they prayed. This is the history of the nation of Israel, and their prayer was probably much more structured than our prayer is. And that's fine. It's good to have structured prayer, but we're also commanded to pray without ceasing. That means that whatever we're doing at any time of the day, we should have an attitude of prayer. Then it says, all who believed were together. And I believe that means together in every sense of the word. They were together physically, geographically, and they were together spiritually and emotionally in their purpose, in their intent, in what they were doing, they were together. And they had all things in common. They were unified and they shared all things. Oh, you need food? I have food. You need clothing? I have clothing. Whatever you need, I'm willing to share with you because they were together and they had all things in common. And then it says they sold their possessions and divided them among all. This is where our modern liberal theologians who actually don't believe the Bible but somehow want to take the Bible and say, see, Jesus was a communist and so was the early church. We have politicians who don't want to have anything to do with the Bible when it speaks of their sin, but then they want to come to the Bible and take a scripture like this out of context because it conveniently fits their political agenda to turn a nation into a socialist country. See, even Jesus was a socialist. No, I'm sorry, he was not, and neither was the early church in any way, shape, or form. Actually, they were the exact opposite of that. They sold their possessions and they divided them among all, not because they were communists or socialists, but because they were generous and giving and loving and they weren't covetousness, or they weren't covet, coveting their own things or anybody else's things, so they could freely give. Yeah. It says so, continuing daily, not weekly, not bi-monthly, not biannually or annually, but daily, with one accord in the temple and from house to house, they continuously assembled together in large and small gatherings, both publicly and privately. And what was the mark of those gatherings? It says that they, with gladness, simplicity, and praise, ate their meals together or gathered together. Gladness, simplicity, and praise marked their company. And God added, to the church, to the assembly daily. Because they bore the marks of transformation. They were a transformed people. They were transformed individuals that became a transformed community, a transformed church, a transformed assembly of people. God calls us to transformation. And that transformation can only come by the Holy Spirit. And He poured out His Spirit so that we could be and would be transformed. And when we come to this table, we remember Jesus. The body that He gave up for us and the blood that He poured out for us so that we could become acceptable to God in His grace, through faith. And God could cleanse us and make us new so that we could bear those marks of transformation and give glory to Him in this earth. Amen. Let's get ready and come to the table. When we come to this table... I want to remind you that what's most important about this table is the body of Christ. And I don't mean that little piece of bread. And I don't mean Jesus seated at the right hand of majesty on high. When the early church came together and they partook of the Lord's table, it was a constant reminder of them of the body, of one another. We are the body of Christ. This is where we're different than the Catholics. We don't believe that bread's going to turn into flesh and that wine's going to turn into blood. The reality of the presence of Jesus at this table is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are the flesh and blood that marks the presence of Jesus here. And when the early church came to the table of the Lord, they were conscious of the body And when they weren't conscious of the body, we have letters like 1 Corinthians where Paul brings correction to the church and he says, your problem is you're not correctly discerning the body. If you were correctly discerning it, you wouldn't have pride, you wouldn't have arrogance, you wouldn't have envy for somebody else, covet someone else's gift. You don't have any love because you're not discerning the body. You're focused on yourself instead of focusing on what Christ has done in making us all individual members part of one body. We are part of one another. We are the body of Christ. So that having been said, I invite you to come to Jesus. Come to this table. Let's all stand. Here's your charge today. So I want you to remember, we're together, we're together here, we're together in Christ, we're one in Him. When you think of Christ, don't think of Christ without thinking of His body. Don't think of Christ, the person of Christ, without thinking of the persons that make up His body. If we call ourselves the church, and we do, our life must give witness accordingly. For to call ourselves the church is to identify with Christ. And if we identify with Christ, we must conform to his life and his character as revealed to us in his word. The life and character of Christ is first revealed to us when the scripture records that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning of the gospel recorded for us. From the beginning of Genesis to the recorded end in Revelation and all that is in between, Christ is made known and made manifest in all things. As we profess to repent, as we are baptized, whether we are infants or adults, the true measure of our faith is a life that is transformed. Our lives are not transformed by our baptism or even by our repentance. Our lives are transformed by the grace and the power of God working in us by the Holy Spirit. To be baptized and to be filled with the Spirit is to be changed and to live in submission to the Spirit. Do we fail? Yes. What do we do then? We repent and we keep moving into the future. You cannot be transformed by living in the past. You are transformed as you look to Christ who is ahead and moving forward, moving forward into the future as he has prepared and purposed in his sovereign grace. If you are a child of God, it is because the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. Therefore, walk in the Spirit and be transformed by his renewing power. And the Scripture promises that we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh if we do that. You are the church. We are The church, we are the blood-bought, the redeemed. Therefore, say so and live so. God commands it. He does not suggest it. He commands it. And if we are His, then let us obey, no matter what the cost may be. Amen.